0: You're listening to Facets of Life, a podcast about physiology and the lives of those who study it. I'm John Kennedy. It's graduation season across the country, and students are celebrating the years of work that have culminated in their degree. I'm at the University of Arizona, and my physiology department holds a pre-commencement ceremony for our undergraduates. It's a small get-together that's more personal than the huge university-wide commencement. Well, it started off small years ago with about 50 students, but this time we had about 250 graduating students, along with 2,000 of their friends and family members. So after a student's name is called, we give them a few moments at the podium to share what their future plans are. As I waited to shake their hands and congratulate them, I listened to them describe their next steps. By and large, most of them said they were going into some health-related field. A few dozen or so were headed off to medical school, with the vast majority planning to apply or reapply to medical school. The other large group had decided to go on to graduate school for a master's or PhD in sciences. When I was a student, I remember cringing a bit every time someone asked me, so what's next after your bachelor's? Like many of my friends in physiology, my default response to this was apply to medical school. In truth, though, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And several years ago, when I had the opportunity to share my future plans at the podium, I wasn't sure then either. What I wanted was more perspective to help me make my decision. My guest today is Dr. Jose Ek-Vitorin, and he has experience in two very different worlds. He's one of those rare people who went after both an MD and a PhD, a doctor doctor. He's currently a research assistant professor at the University of Arizona. I asked him how he decided to go down the paths that he did.
1: I, I think that I always wanted to do research, but in the area where I lived in Mexico, there was no uh, an institute where you could go and, and do research immediately. You needed to go to Mexico City if you wanted to. Um, so the, I think the closest thing to... To knowing many things, particularly the things that affect our bodies more more directly, our biology, our physiology, our anatomy, was in medicine so i I started by studying biology and then jumped to to medicine because everybody was going there. all my friends were trying to were trying to get into medicine so So I went there and I liked it its it 's a great profession it 's extremely profound satisfying, but at the same time, it's hard because of the emotional charge that can come with it, uh, with seeing people having responsibility for their lives. So by the time I finished, I decided to try again and see if I could do some research, actually. There was some clinical research going on, but I was never accepted there. I didn't try hard, I guess. So I... uh, I started studying again biology, cell biology, genetics, and and presented a test to get into research in Mexico City this time. Now with some experience and some more resources, I was able to get a, a scholarship, and so I studied there for my master. My idea was going back to the clinics, but I never did. I saw an action potential one day, and that... That was it. I, I thought I could do this kind, of, this kind of work rather than going back to clinics. But I did have a clinical experience. I went to work in the farmlands for a couple of years before I went to, to research. That lent me more appreciation for the clinical work I did in the hospital, right? But it's, medicine is much better when it's done closer to, to people who really, really need it. Not that the people at the hospital don't need it but you have to understand that in Mexico there are people who live far from the cities and they don't have always access to to medicine good medicine so one going over there is 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 a great help and also there was uh, the social part there was the uh vaccination organization uh trying to clean up the town and i put <laughs> i put a group of ladies to run before it was uh, even fashionable, I was trying to do some aerobic program with this with these uh, ladies. They didn't change their body type, but they certainly lost a bit of weight, and they were happy. So it was it was fun. It was really really nice. But research that is what was calling me all the time.
0: Was there a, a defining moment that where you said, "I'm gonna"? stay? Stick with research as opposed to the clinical side of things.
1: Besides the episode I told you when I first, for the first time, I really saw an action potential being recorded from a living cell in a um, papillary muscle of the dog. uh, I'm thinking that that um, electrical phenomenon is indeed the work of proteins. Proteins that are... Allowing some ions to pass from outside to inside of the cell and the, and the other way around, all that is was fantastic, right? and And I wanted to do more of it. But uh, a defining moment when I decided not to go back to the clinics or rather stay in research, I can't find it. It's more like you' are walking, you're hiking. And you keep going, and before you know it, you are far away. And it's better to go someplace else than going back to the town you came from. Something like that. Something like that happened. At some point, you say, well, I'm having too much fun here. <laughs> I like this. I like this. Why Why do I go back to, to the clinics? I mean, it's good, but you know, as I mentioned, the, the emotional charge in there, that is not... Entirely absent, but it's not strongly present in research. In research, depending on the research that you do, right? You can do clinical research, but if you do basic research, well, nobody's dying. <laughs> nobody's dying there. You are working with cells. You are doing. Uh, you are working with systems that represent that are models for what you want to study, but there is no patients involved, and that's the kind of research I do. As I said, there are other clinical researchers and uh, definitely they share their life between the laboratory and their ethical responsibility to patients, and and that is great. I don't know that I will ever be able to to do something like that, but, well, who knows?
0: (laughs) You mentioned you had gone to Mexico City to continue down the path of research and gaining your—earning your Ph.D. Uh, what did you do for your Ph.D. research?
1: Uh, that's a funny story. I went to—my my initial intention, as I told you, was to get simply a better knowledge of physiology or pharmacology to, to be better—a better physician— um, so I was shooting for a master in science, and I did it. I finished that. And uh, during that time, I decided why not continue and do a PhD. Um, I was studying a little bit of potassium channels, a little bit of uh, um, the, the role of the refractory period in, in both in the heart of dogs and in the crayfish um hard. At that time was um I was fascinated by the fact that all cells be together, right? And there was this concept the that, uh, that cells were talking to each other directly, that there was some electrical communication that allowed the pass of current from cell to cell very fast without essentially no resistance, with no resistance actually, uh whatsoever. It was as if the cells were a single cable or a single syncytion. That's what my teacher used to say, that cardiac tissue is a functional sensation from the electrical point of view. So I, w- I was thinking, what, wh- why is that? Wh- what is it? Um, whatever the connection between cells was, thought, um, it was called nexus. They were nexi. They were, it's a nice word. So I, I became interested more on that, on that part, independently of the sodium, potassium, and calcium channels that are so, so important for the, for the action potential. But it was obvious that if there was no low resistance between cells, well, this impulse couldn't pass from cell to cell, right? So I, I was thinking about doing something like that. I started my program in, uh, in Mexico and at that point there was an invitation to go to to new york to uh upstate new york to do a postdoctoral um fellowship it happened that they accepted my medical studies and my master's size as an equivalent to a to a phd essentially right so i was there in the position that it's funny I was doing my PhD for for the program in Mexico, and the experiments were run in the pharmacology department of SUNY. But there, I was actually a worker. I was hired as a as a postdoc. So, <laughs> it's uh that's how 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 we did it. So I from '92 to '97, about five years, I finished experiments enough for two publications and. Uh, went back to Mexico to, present my, to defend my, my thesis, which was, um, well, I haven't told you right, right? Uh, what I actually went to study in New York, and the reason I went for is because I was offered to study gap junctions, who was my, my, my goal at that point. I wanted to know more about it.
0: Maybe we can back up a little bit. Could you describe what gap junctions are?
1: There are channels from cell to cell, and these are called gap junctions, or in Spanish, uniones comunicantes, and they let pass ions and a lot of other things that we are trying to know, what they are, ATP perhaps, IP3, sugars, small peptides, and other things. They are very important in the heart, but not only in the heart, because they are everywhere, in every cell type, uh, with Maybe a couple of exceptions. You can find gap junctions among every cell type. This is the most intimate form of communication. And that's what I'm interested in. I started in the heart, but I am finding out that they, they are more complicated, more interesting, more complex, more, more, more uh, intriguing than I thought at the beginning. It's not just for passing electricity. There are signals going from cell to cell that cells need to coordinate their work. So we wanted to know how pH affected the function of gap junctions, and it was known that low pH can uncouple gap junctions. So what I did was to identify which regions of the molecule of the connexin, which is the protein that formed those gap junctions, are actually important for the pH gating of these of these proteins. Uh, that was essentially it. Um, so I identify some histidines near the pore and uh, two regions in the carboxy terminal domain of this protein that needed to interact somehow to close the channel. And there was a suspicion that the same region had something to do with the voltage gating, too, and
0: probably other chemical gatings. So uh, you you mentioned that um, your your interest gravitated towards physiology research. Now, would you say that that was a natural fit for a physician? And so, you know, while not all physiologists are physicians, are all physicians (laughs) physiologists? Physiologists. Yeah,
1: that that sounds like the philosophical problem of (laughs) Aristotle. The way I understand, I may be wrong with this, but the first physiologists were physicians, but certainly physiology as such didn't exist Some time ago, right? Uh, it, there are some observations and some knowledge that you can consider now where physiological knowledge. But physiology as such is, it only started the modern version of it uh, last century. I think in the 1900s something um, was defined as a, as a field and it started to, to, uh, to grow. It is not always clear what physiology is, and I think we have commented uh, at some point this this particular uh, issue. For what I see as physiology is the study of, of function, function, how things work, uh, but particularly the body, the human body, or the animal bodies, particularly the bodies of uh, complex animals, we will say, superior animals of, of some people like to call them. It's the science of function. It's, uh, it's not only um, knowing that they have this anatomical structure here or there, on, you have a kidney, you have a liver, heart, but how do they combine to make up the whole functioning organism? That, that is physiology. Of course, it is started mostly as cardiovascular, uh, neurophysiology, uh, but now, now you can extend it to everything. Well, you cannot extend it. It is extended. It extends to, to, to cover every functioning part of your body or, or any other bodies, for that matter. I think the question was whether physiology was a natural a pull, gravitational pull, you said, for a physician. I suppose it was, at least for me. But I don't know that... that that every physician is actually interested in physiology, and I find that a little disappointing because when you understand physiology, you, you get a better understanding of what a disease is, what is wrong with the disease, what is the malfunction, dysfunction, or failure. So learning physiology is, is essential. It's as essential as, as, as anatomy. I think they, they go hand-to-hand structure is function. Physiology is, is a whole novel, <laughs> it's a whole thing. It's, it's many details put together and it's, it's, it's a jigsaw, it's a, it's a game, it's a detective work, it's everything. It's everything. You can be a physiologist and answer a lot of questions or at least try trying to, to answer. It's a training, it's a point of view, I think it's a perspective. I think people should, should learn basic physiology everywhere.
0: I'd have to agree with that. <laughs> so uh, taking it um, a little more broadly and, and comparing you know, a, a medical doctor and a physiologist, what if we uh, changed our perspective a little bit and asked this question, uh, are, are physicians scientists inherently?
1: Well, this is a situation that we have considered, we as many people, considered many times along my experience. Since the very beginning of medicine, it was clear for for, for some professors, and they taught us that. Uh, they definitely say clearly that medicine is not a science, and we were shocked, right? So what do you mean? Well, what happens is that medicine is as they say, it's an art. I think it's a combination of several things. You have to learn basic things. You have to learn everything you can and is available to understand how the body functions so that you can treat it, cure it. But there is the particularly important uh, skill of talking to people, of, of getting an interest on, on people. It has been my belief for a long time that is, if you don't have an interest in your fellow, you cannot be a good physician. You can be a physician. You can treat people. You can, you can do a lot of things. You can earn money. But a good doctor needs mostly, most than anything, empathy. He needs an interest. He needs a, a love for, for, for all of us, right? Once you have that, then, then you can study, you can apply yourself to, to learn things and, and do a lot. But it is essential. So it is medicine a science. It is not a science. It's not a field that you study. It's the combination of many fields that come to help or, or you use to help other people, right? And you use that combined with your talent to talk to people.
0: I, I think you addressed the question very nicely. And you know, I think many people would be um, rather taken aback if you told them that <laughs> medicine no, is not, medicine a, is science, not science. a science. <laughs> no,
1: it's several science, indeed. That's what I said. It's several science combined. How much of it you take to, for your use, for, for, for the benefit of everybody,
0: well, that depends on many things, right? Right. Maybe it might be um, better to call it an integrative art.
1: <laughs> well, it is something like that. It's something like that. Uh, a physician is, is, in a sense, is more than a scientist. It is somebody that can use science for for the benefit of many. He apply all that knowledge that has been acquired and in his or her own time, he may also produce some some basic scientific knowledge or clinical uh, research and that is fantastic i I know some people who do that very well very well they publish nice papers that are basic but apply directly to to the clinical setting
0: but would you say that your medical training has made you a better scientist and Um, Can you imagine yourself being a scientist without your medical training?
1: Um, I don't know if you can call better. There are situations when you cannot use better or worse or or less or more. What I can say is that my medical training has given me a very defined particular perspective um, that helps me to say, for instance, okay, this experiment is interesting, but I don't see the point of it. What is the benefit of it? So <laughs> a little bit of the anthropocentric uh, attitude is there. I, I appreciate science as it is basic knowledge for knowledge itself, just like you want to know things. But but yes, the medical education helps you to, to put that in perspective, helps you to, to think what is this for? Why, why, why is this important? In the particular case of my field of study, which is gap junctions, I still think these are essential proteins. Uh, I think I have told you at some point, gap junctions, which is just the channels between cells, exist in many other organisms, not only in, in, in mammals or, or uh, vertebrates, they exist in insects, and it's a completely different protein. And yet, this protein works very much like the gap junctions of, of vertebrates. Other type of cell-to-cell communication, cell-to-cell channels, exists also in plants, in fungi. Why do cells need to communicate? Well, that is the basic question. And I think our field is a little bit um, uh, not... Uh, completely recognized. It's growing very slowly because people have not figured out what gap junctions are for. Why do they pass? Why, are, why are, are they important? But up to now, in the last 30, 40 years, mostly in the last two decades, there have been um, an accumulation of knowledge showing that defects, genetic defects of dysfunction in gap junctions are related to Syndromes, genetic syndromes that were not that before we didn't know what was what was the cause of them. There is uh, some deafness, uh, and some uh, atrophies, bone defects that seem to be due to to gap junction dysfunction. Uh, up to now, there hasn't been a clearly identified syndrome, uh, cardiac syndrome related to gap junctions, but definitely if you erase or modify Connection 43 in the heart, you have heart defects. And if you decrease the expression of Connection 43 in the heart in the adult with um, these techniques that we now have, conditional knockout, <laughs> you definitely affect the function of the heart to the point that you get arrhythmias, right? And uh, we know that gap junctions are necessary for good secretion in, of insulin. We know that gap junctions are, are low in, in cancer cells. So something is going on there, and we need more people to study them. We need to get new ideas and new forms of studying them until we find out why cells like to talk to each other and why they stop talking to each other when they are about to die. This is, this is an interesting phenomenon.
0: I think it's interesting that you, uh, you mentioned that the, the field of gap junction research is relatively young. Would you say that the, the basic science is a little behind many other fields?
1: Well, we have a particular problem on this field. You know how people talk about sodium channels, potassium channels, and they talk about them because they know for sure this is what passes through them. And we recently saw a seminar when somebody mentioned that, well, uh, some sodium channels can actually let pass calcium, and it is counterintuitive given the, the amount of knowledge, accumulating knowledge that we have, but I have heard that before. Some, some channels are not completely um, specific for a, for a given ion. Indeed, there are channels well-recognized that pass cations independently of what what the element is. But there is a specialty there. There is a selectivity of these channels for their ion, the preferred ion, right? In gap junctions, we don't know that. We don't know what gap junction is what. What, Well, first of all, there are about 20 different proteins, and they can even combine more, more than one protein in a single channel, right? So the selectivity of the channel is still not known. And the permeants that go through these channels and may have an effect on the neighboring cells is not known. And I think that is, is one of the main problems that we have in, in the field, how to detect, perceive, identify the permeants that go through these channels. And only when we do that, we can probably start um, understanding what is, what is the function. What is the message? What is the message that goes through gap junction? And it's probably not a single one. It's probably a different one depending on the functional state of the channels, depending on the connection that is expressed in the cells, depending on the phosphorylation environment of the cells. But if we can get to the point of finding, measuring, identifying permeants, that would be, be good. That would be extraordinarily good.
0: So, do you think that 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 basic question that still remains rather foggy and no definitive answer to it yet, is that one of the main things holding back clinical research in this field?
1: Not necessarily. As you know, there are drugs, some medicines that have been used for a long time without us knowing perfectly how, how they work, right? There is a lot of cases where our knowledge of, of mechanism of action is delayed with respect to, to, to new treatments. Ideally, we should find out what is the mechanism before we use it, right? But th- that isn't, that's not always the case. That, indeed, I think that's rarely the case. There is a group that is starting to use methods to actually block gap junctions, and they are having great results in preclinical trials in um, helping the healing of the surface of the eye uh, when there is a chemical or or some other damage on the eye. This is one of the the parts of the field that is intensely uh, active because they are trying to understand how does it work. Why, why, uh,
0: why blocking gabionsians can actually be beneficial. Looking more into the future and, and tying it back to the rarity of having an individual or having people in science that they carry both an MD and a PhD. You know, some medical schools now offer dual MD PhD programs. Uh, is this? Do you think that this is good for the field uh, of science? Do we need? Need more people that have both the clinical perspective and the basic science perspective?
1: We always can use more people working on science. <laughs> I think the I'm not going to repeat the political or social implications of of supporting science, right? From the point of view of somebody who works on the field, yes, we can always use more people interested and and bringing new ideas and new perspectives. To our, to our work. No, definitely, yes. The problem is, as you, you may know, is that the support for science, particularly from the government, is shrinking, but we have less support and, 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 and people is less interested. So what to do? I don't know.
0: For any student that is considering going into science and perhaps even considering doing an MD, PhD, uh, what kind of advice would you give them?
1: As I said, I always have an interest in research, but I actually finished medicine and then I did research and I stayed in research. I think if somebody has the ability uh, and, the, and the will of going through that, by all means, they should, they should. But I, I, I don't know, I cannot evaluate what is the workload going there. I know for sure that doing medicine is very hard. And doing research is not easier either. So doing both, I don't know. <laughs> I definitely cannot counsel somebody to, to to go and crash. <laughs> depends, that depends on, on every person. I think if somebody has the ability, by all means, yes, they, they should. They should. Particularly if they do have that dual interest in clinical and and um, basic work. But if somebody has any doubt, well, just think very carefully.
0: Thank you again to Dr. Jose Ekvitorin for sharing his experiences with us today. If you'd like to be a guest on this podcast, please contact me at jcannedy at email.arizona.edu. Thanks for listening.